Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. The following is the first episode of Macrodose, a new weekly podcast from James Meadway that PTO is pleased to be supporting and partnering with. Every Wednesday, James will be bringing you a 15-minute update on the key economic stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. The show seeks to chart our way through these turbulent times and build a vision for a just, sustainable and progressive future. Today's show is brought to you by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles, including Towards a Green Democratic Revolution, Left Populism and the Power of Affects by Chantal Mouffe. How can the left deal with the economic, social and ecological crisis that the pandemic has brought to the fore? In her new book, Chantal Mouffe proposes the creation of a broad coalition of movements under the banner of a green democratic revolution. This entails the protection of society and its material conditions in a way that empowers people instead of making them retreat in a defensive nationalism or in a passive acceptance of technological solutions. Towards a Green Democratic Revolution, Left Populism and the Power of Affects by Chantal Mouffe is out this month and part of the Verso Book Club November reading. You are now listening to Macrodose. Good morning and welcome to Macrodose, a brand new podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we'll bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look at the OECD warning that the UK's growth prospects are the worst of all the G7 countries. We'll also take a look at the fallout from the Autumn Statement and the austerity 2.0 measures of Rishi Sunak's government. And finally, a quick overview of the new IMF report on inflation, which debunks the idea that the advanced economies like the UK experience rising prices due to an increase in worker pay. Before we get started, just a quick note on how this show will work over the coming weeks. Alongside this weekly roundup, we'll also be bringing you in-depth interviews with some of the leading voices in economics, including conversations with Yanis Varoufakis, Jayati Ghosh and Grace Blakely. You'll find all these and many more over on our Patreon. Search patreon.com macrodose and subscribe today. So the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, is a, a club for richer countries. Um, the idea being that you get invited in once you're rich enough uh, and you join and you share research and economic policy ideas. Historically, it's, it's been somewhere like the IMF or, or these other big international organisations that's promoted neoliberal ideas. Although in recent years, it's been uh, somewhat more critical of the idea that free markets and uh, governments should keep out of the way of what markets are doing and that free trade should dominate policymaking. It's been a bit more critical recently. Um, it produces a, a biannual report on the state of the economy, including its own forecast of what you think is going to happen across different parts of the economy in, the, in different countries in the world over the next few years. And it's this forecast that in Britain has been getting a lot of attention. Um, they, these forecasts always tend to. Uh, the IMF produces forecasts for the world economy. There's one not too not too long ago. Um, they get attention because they arrive with this big international intergovernmental organisation saying this is what the world is going to be like. But it's always worth remembering that these things are forecasts. They're speculations, informed speculations based on you know, economic theory, a model, uh, economists trying to make that model work as best they can. 
but nonetheless a kind of speculation about the future. This isn't scientific. It's not the same as running an experiment. It's not even close to this. So if you hear an economic forecast, it's always worth remembering that these things can be wrong and quite frequently are wrong, often spectacularly wrong. Uh, they miss big events. You know, No one foresaw, as the Queen pointed out, no one really foresaw, or at least none of the big international organisations saw the uh, global financial crisis of 2008. And then there's some events that happened that you probably couldn't expect an economic model to spot, like coronavirus turning up. I mean, there's no model really in economics that'll tell you that this is going to happen, but it has a huge impact on everything that's since. So these forecasts can be wrong. They can be a guide to the future, but they're not necessarily what's going to happen. So that when a bunch of, well, politicians, commentators, newspapers uh, turn around and say the OECD says that Britain will be the worst performing country in the G7 group of economies and second last only to Russia in the G20 over the next year, that our economy is going to shrink and it's going to be uh, quite terrible. You need to look not only at what the OECD is saying, but why it's saying that. There's a reason behind this, there's a way the model works. And this is where I think, uh, actually, this may not quite be right. The OECD says the problem for Britain next year is, and this I find quite bizarre, is the energy price guarantee, which it says is going to directly contribute to uh, rising inflation. That because the government's going to go out and spend a lot of money capping people's uh, domestic energy prices, they've done that already in October, they'll be doing it again in April, the OECD reckons that this means that everybody will have more money in their pockets, go out and try and spend it, uh, and thus make uh, inflation go up. Now, there are two obvious problems with this. The first one is that, look, the energy price guarantee has already made inflation come down. Our Office of National Statistics says that without the energy price guarantee, the headline rate of inflation already at a record level, the highest, well, not quite, but the highest it's been for 40 years, right? So <laughs> there are people listening to this who wouldn't have been alive the last time we had inflation uh, this high, that already have this high inflation at 10.1%, it would be about 13, 13.5% without the energy price guarantee. So they reckon it's chopped a bunch off inflation because it's made people's uh, energy, uh, domestic energy bills lower than they would have been. So it's brought inflation down. But the other bit is that the argument of the OECD, that once you have this big government support, everyone's now going to feel really super rich and go off and spend their money and go crazy shopping and therefore drive prices up, it just doesn't match the facts. Nobody looking at their energy bill in October says, I feel so much better off because the government is capping this bill now. I mean, they are, but you don't feel much better off. Your bill's still gone up massively. And it's going to go up again. This is what uh, they announced last week in the autumn statement. It's going to go up again uh, when you get to April next year. You're not going to feel richer because of this. The completely topsy-turvy logic. And it shows the OECD still attached to this very sort of conventional, neoliberal way of thinking about the world, that once you start saying government is going to support spending, or rather in this case, subsidise uh, household uh, budgets somewhat, it leads automatically to a massive increase in spending and therefore to inflation. This just doesn't match the facts of where we are now. Households in Britain, like they are across the rest of the world, are having to spend more and more of their money on essentials, food, energy, uh, transport. That means they have less to spend on everything else. And that's one of the things driving us into inflation. If you're spending more on your uh, energy bill to keep your house warm, you're not going to be spending so much in the shops. You're not going to be going out for to eat a meal. You're not going to go to the pub so often, whatever it might be. That drives us into a recession. It doesn't lead to more inflation the way that the OECD claim. Our second story this week is about what the British government is doing with its spending, including that energy price guarantee, or rather what it's going to do with cutting that spending. Because as people will have seen, the big story uh, 
for the last month or so has been the government's uh, attempts to return to austerity to impose another round of dramatic spending cuts like people remember well, because we're still living with it uh, from earlier uh, in the decade from the 2010s when the George Osborne as Chancellor and David Cameron as Prime Minister backed up by uh, the Liberal Democrats in government at the time imposed some of the most dramatic spending cuts this country has seen for generations really since the uh, Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, that was austerity 1.0. And, and we live with the consequences. It's why uh, we have uh, an economy that doesn't work too well now. It's why people aren't paid as much as they might be otherwise. It's why the NHS is creaking. It's why you find local authorities don't have enough cash. It's just a succession of disasters and a public realm that doesn't function in the way that we would want. And yet the government was there saying, well, we want to, we want to go back to this. We want to uh, bring uh, what they're going to call fiscal discipline and what they're saying is absolutely essential to deal with this changed circumstances we now face in Britain, which hinged, of course, on a particular story that they were promoting all the way through to the autumn statement last week about a supposed black hole in the public finances that had opened up a huge, presumably terrifying thing, perhaps 50, 60 billion pounds that had just sort of disappeared uh, that needed to be filled in with these sort of uh, sacrifices from the rest of us, of tax rises, not just for the rich, but of course for the rest of the population, of spending cuts being applied on top of the spending cuts that we've all already suffered. Um, that was the talk before the autumn statement. What actually um, came out of it, I think, was something that looked a bit different to this, that First of all, that story about the the black hole, that for all the talk beforehand from the government, uh, from the people close to the government, from their media outriders, from some would-be reputable organisations like the Institute for Fiscal Studies talking about a fiscal hole that had appeared in the public finances, usually blamed on the sort of quasi-quartang list trust uh, budget farrago of, of about a month, six weeks ago, um, that this hole had appeared and had to be filled and all the rest of it. Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, didn't actually reference the thing once in his speech last week. It seems to have disappeared as a concern for government, instead replaced by the idea that we'd have to cut spending to get on top of inflation. Now, you might suspect from all of this sort of sliding around on stories, from all of this incredible shrinking and growing and changing size of the black hole, its size had varied from you know 30 billion in some places to 70 billion or more in others, that perhaps there wasn't really anything much behind all of this. And you'd be quite right, as a bit of research um, published by the Progressive Economy Forum last week from two academic economists, Joe Michel and Rob Calvert-Junt, showed that this black hole that had suddenly appeared was largely based on precisely those forecasts that we just talked about with the OECD, those forecasts that are so often wrong, that are so uncertain, that are dealing with so many different things happening all at once. You really can't pin all of your austerity programme on those forecasts being right, and at the same time on saying that the government intended to hit a certain target for the size of the debt of itself, the government debt, in five years' time. If you change the target, or if you alter the forecast slightly, if you think something different might happen in the future, the black hole changes entirely in size. It can even disappear entirely. Tweak the measure that the government was using for its debt back to what it was using in January this year before it switched, and suddenly the black hole disappears and you actually have a £14 billion extra to spend. These things are very, very uncertain. These things are very wobbly. To talk about a black hole was nonsense. And the government, I think, has sort of backed away from that particular claim. But it's also backed away quite strikingly from immediately rushing into austerity. That we've actually got two years now where 
again, if you believe the forecast, and they're likely to be about right in this, we've got two years of high inflation, of wages not keeping pace with inflation, and therefore a big squeeze on living standards. The amount of money that you have won't buy as much as it used to. You'll feel that just as people have felt this over the last 18 months or so. You'll feel that for the next two years, a real squeeze for most people who are not seeing their pay keep pace with inflation. But then that will be immediately followed on the government's own plans by two years, essentially, of spending cuts. So in other words, two years of being made poorer by inflation and, by the way, a recession uh, that the, uh, the Office of Budget Responsibility, the official forecasters and the Bank of England and everyone is saying that we've now entered and it will continue, followed by, as soon as that ends, another round of spending cuts incidentally taking place after the date by which the next general election is due. Now, if you're cynical, and you should be cynical about these things, then you might think perhaps the government has chosen that date to start another round of spending cuts because it doesn't really want to have to deal with these things right now, but it's quite happy to try and create a political problem for whatever the government happens to be in the future. And the polling right now says, of course, it's not likely to be a Conservative-led government. So they've shoved all the spending cuts uh, off into the distance, or at least most of them. They've also, by the way, pushed a load of tax rises that, for most people, uh, into the distance as well. There were some increases in taxation immediately for you know, the expansion of the windfall tax. The uh, various energy companies are going to be paying a little bit more out of their extraordinary profits than they would be. But let's not be fooled by this. The bulk of the tax rises are on most of us in the form of stealth tax rises, in the form of uh, not raising the levels at which you pay income tax to match the rate of inflation, meaning that more and more people get dragged into higher and higher levels of income tax whilst the government can pretend nothing is happening. And that's all scheduled to take place in two years' time. Now, put all this together. This doesn't sound like a, a big, confident government move to say, OK, now we're doing austerity. We've got rights on our side. We're going to apply this. We have a clear vision for the future. It looks an awful lot like political management of trying to steer the whole thing in a certain direction, of trying to keep the various different factions of the Conservative Party happy, of trying to keep uh, some of the people who are a bit more committed to spending cuts happy, whilst also trying to keep some of the people who are a bit more committed to the promises that Boris Johnson made in the 2019 election not to do austerity, trying to keep them happy as well. It's a mess and it's a mess from the weak government. Will they ever be able to do those spending cuts? Well, frankly, if it's after the next election, it doesn't seem very likely. And all of that hinges on what Labour chooses to do or not do. They shouldn't accept austerity. It was a disaster for them to go anywhere near it in the 2010s. It was a disaster that they've only just managed to be able to crawl out of in the last few years. And it would be absolutely terrible for them to try and return in the future and saying we're the party that's going to try and impose these damaging socially, of course, but economically damaging spending cuts in the future. And finally, on to the wage price spiral, the claim by well, people like the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, and other central bankers and other sort of you know, respectable people in the world of economics that we have to ask people now to not have big pay rises in case it leads to higher inflation in the future. Andrew Bailey himself uh, said, I'm not saying nobody gets a pay rise, explaining uh, why he was talking about wage restraint. Don't get me wrong. But what I am saying is we do need to see restraint in pay bargaining. Otherwise, it will get out of control. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that Andrew Bailey himself on uh, £500,000 a year salary is not really talking about wage restraint for himself or other extremely well-paid people. He's actually talking about wage restraint, as he's calling it, for nurses, teachers, lorry drivers, whoever else out there who might be currently looking at 
10% or more inflation. It's even worse than that if you're buying food. 14% inflation uh, on food over the last 12 months. Um, looking at prices going up and looking at their wages and realising the gap between the two is getting uh, rather dramatic. They may also think that if you're talking about wage restraint, in other words, you're going to try and keep your wages down, that this seems a slightly illogical way to proceed when clearly the problem right now for them personally, probably you personally, is not that you've got too much money so you're going mad spending it and making prices go up, is that you don't, you don't have enough money and prices are going up anyway. That what you really want is your wages to match uh, the pace of price increase. But nonetheless, this is a, an argument in economics that if you have wages go up too much, then, well, firms will have to put up prices and then it goes back into, because once prices have gone up, everyone will ask for more wages. So wages go up and then prices go up and so on. And that's a spiral. Now, that's a fairly fixed view for a chunk of the economics profession. Lots and lots of central banks, central bank governors uh, think like this. But unusually, uh, it's been challenged by, well, none other than the International Monetary Fund, not normally noted for standing up for, you know, workers and against central bankers, but here we are, who did, who went back and looked at the historical evidence over the last 60 years or so across the big advanced economies, trying to find those places where you had a situation where wages and prices were rising. And it was clearly the case that wages and prices rising like this would push up prices at an accelerating pace into the future. In other words, that wage price spiral. And to their seeming slight surprise, this actually doesn't happen very often. It's very rare to find something like that. It's even rarer to find a situation where wages have been low, like they have been in Britain, and then suddenly the economy springs into a wage price spiral once inflation gets going. The evidence for this, the empirical evidence for this, simply isn't there. So if someone starts saying to you, well, you have to be paid less in real terms because inflation is so high and prices are going up so much, your wages need to not go up, they're not arguing for on the basis of historical evidence. They're not arguing on the basis of how economies really behave. And I think we all need to learn a lesson from this, which is, look, if prices are going up, the best way to deal with that is to make sure that people are paid properly to cope with prices going up. And whether that's your pay going up, your benefits going up or your pensions going up, that's what we need to argue for. Thank you for tuning in to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon. Search patreon.com slash macrodose and subscribe today.